three of Canadian Turf Talks, and we're here online with Paul McCormack. He is the superintendent and GM at Fox Meadow Golf Course, and he's known on all the social media handles as the Mindful Superintendent. Now, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what the what your title means there, the Mindful Superintendent? Well, that handle kind of developed, a pro- actually, it'll be 10 years ago this December, I began writing a blog on TurfNet, um, website down in the US, um, run by Peter McCormick. Um, and it was really started more or less just to kind of get ideas down on paper or computer. And I just started writing about the more personal side of the business and then started writing about all of the things that mattered most to me. And so, yeah, and that whole handle kind of developed from that blog, I guess, originally. And then I just kind of made it my Twitter handle and it's kind of gone from there. So it is, it is really cool because like I know having previously been basically a superintendent, it, it, it's, there's a high level of anxiety because a lot of things in your job are well outside of your control. And, you know, you're, and, and I just, I, I, I haven't, I, mean, I read some of the blogs today and it's just like, man, it's so true. Like it's, it's a challenge. A lot of superintendents in those 90 days of hell that we call it here in Ontario or in, in the yep. industry is like, it's really challenging, right? Cause you're, you're trying to balance family life, but the golf course needs you and it's always calling and, you know, being mindful of where you're really, what really matters and how Having the big picture thinking to me is always uh, someone who struggles with busyness is is and you know young family and stuff. I, I think it's awesome. I think it's really good to to try to be my. It's not that easy. No, it's sure. not. And and I can't claim to be an expert at it. I I fail daily. Actually, it's it's one of those scenarios that. But being intentional about it and and doing your best is really all you can ever do. And mm. I think it it's been an interesting journey. In, with turf managers and superintendents to to hear their stories and to to have them convey their anxieties, their worries, their difficulties all the way through and getting to meet people at conferences and such too and, and having those those real conversations after the, the talks and after the speaking engagements. That is really the the most rewarding part for me, I think. And it's it's really the thing I think that's kind of spurred me on to continue doing so. Now, you mentioned you had this blog on TurfNet. Are you continuing that blog or you have your own website or what do you I do, I have a I have a website in development, which means I'm kind of thinking about it. <laughs> um and yeah, for now the the blog continues. Um like as I mentioned, it it is 10 years in uh, in December. So yeah, we'll see. Where, where it takes me after this. You want to be mindful of your time and, and your space and your creativity. Um, and, and I can't keep giving everything to everything. So mm-hmm. some things may have to fall by the wayside, but we'll see which those are. Yeah, for sure. You teach me that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know, I don't know the word. No, I don't know what that is. So, but yeah, most superintendents don't. Um, yeah, they, yeah. They, we're, we're often viewed as the people that get stuff done. And so if you need stuff done, you call the superintendent to do it. So it's, it's one of those things that it, it is hard to turn off because we are people pleasing people most of the time. 
Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's been one of those. It, they're hard one lessons, I think, over time. But but really, I think in my career, that's been one of the biggest lessons learned is is just boundaries and and just making sure that you you can work smart, but you can also say no, and and you can also delegate, and you can do all the things that make people a great leader. Because doing it all yourself is just silly. It just it doesn't add up over time and it's not super sustainable. So. Yeah, for sure. So I understand that you did some schooling here in Ontario. Now you're working out in PEI. How did you get into the turf industry? And, and tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, that's kind of a fascinating question, actually. Um, I grew up on Prince Edward Island um, and actually went to the University of PEI and uh, got a psychology degree initially and then was starting a uh, a master's degree in social work actually and i was about halfway through the first semester of that and i thought this isn't for me i i i was doing work i was doing some different things and i just i looked ahead 10 years and i thought i am going to be burned out solid if i do this for a living I just, I care, I care too much and I couldn't separate what I had to at that point. Maybe I would have learned eventually, but, and ironically to get through my university degree, I ran a lawn care business and I had about six or seven employees. We got about 200 lawns and it paid for my college education. So I loved cutting grass. That was the silly part of it. And I grew up up the street from uh, Belvedere golf course and I remember thinking, how did they do that? Like, how is it that that place gets managed? I didn't have any idea how it worked. And I Googled it, I think, and found superintendent. And and then I, I remember my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, I I, I told her about this and, and then we talked about it. And then we subsequently got married and I was working at the hospital here in town. And, and then I decided I wanted to go to school. And she said, you want to? do what you want to go to school to do what For she, she was not a golfer and and I'm not really a golfer either so that would made it even more interesting so then we packed you all up about a year later and drove to Toronto and and ended up in Newmarket Ontario and and took a two-year technician degree at Seneca great program great people yeah it great was program. yeah and it was great. great because I was able to come back home in between time and yeah I went back up the second year and then came back and actually started working here at Fox Meadow. So all that said, I mean, it sounds like, so, I mean, it sounds like, you, you know, you said you love cutting grass, you loved it and you wanted to learn. So what about it? Why do you love it? I like to reflect kind of all these years later. I think it's the artistry. I, I was looking at that question earlier today and that's the word that kind of kept coming into my mind. And, and I mean, that artistry can take a lot of different forms right from the ground up, like how you build it, how you kind of do things along the way to creating something or the artistry can be in tearing it down and starting over again. And and then the daily flow of maintenance and, and managing. And then it never dawned on me that the component of leadership would ever come into it along the way, but it's such... It is the key component of it now. And it, and it's a huge part of what I do each day. And so, yeah, initially, I guess it, that that word artistry just and, and it kind of just infuses everything I do in terms of turf and right from how we mow the greens, how we get mowing lines in place to 
like renovating bunkers to doing whatever we're doing. It's it's I thoroughly enjoy that part even still. Do you feel ahead, that sir. the degree that you did, the Bachelor of Psychology, do you mm-hmm. think that that uh, has taught you something that prepared you to be a superintendent? Absolutely. It was way more valuable than the Seneca degree, I think. Really? <laughs> it's well, ironic. We're going to bleep that out out of first. Well, I don't know have if Seneca upset. or Ted Tom will want to hear that, but uh, somebody asked me that recently, uh, and I said, it's funny because all the things I learned at Seneca, I think I do everything the exact opposite now, just because I've learned over the years that things evolve and we, we learn things. But uh, yeah, the psychology degree for me, it was the door way into leadership i think i I didn't know it at the time but it it was really that first that first minor step into self-awareness and and i think for leadership it, it is such a fundamental premise and learning how you work and and learning what makes you tick and and learning how to study people and and learning how to in kind of relate to people and and that i mean that has become such a key component to being a successful superintendent. It, your ability to to lead, your ability to be compassionate, your ability, like empathy, all those things. And and to me, my psychology degree really was my first foray into kind of that side of human science. Really, so you're you're truly like an artist of the craft, right? Like it's yeah. a craft. That's what I was, and it's I always love. That's what I always I do miss it a bit having left it but is is it is 50 i always thought it was 50 size 50 artistry and it's Absolutely. like you need that you need both of those pieces the, the education is great and you need that in the back pocket when the times are tough but it really is how do you see the golf course and it takes a lot of vision to be a great superintendent it does yeah and, and, and i've i've often thought it, yeah. it's almost like we're we're almost like curators of, yeah. of an art exhibit really because because i mean we oftentimes just inherit a property and it wasn't our original vision and an architect may have had a hand in the vision it could have been just a mom and pop it could have been somebody who just owned it but at any given time it's up to the superintendent to make sure the artist the original artistic vision is visible it's presented mm-hmm. the way it needs to be presented it's a playable surface and it's sustainable and functional at the same time and so all these things like that, it's just that constant dance, really, that that we're always involved in. And and so much of it happens without anyone noticing. And so much of it happens without anyone understanding or seeing what we're doing or even really realizing that we're even there most of the time. So, yeah, it's a thankless so, job. Yeah, it is. Well, it I, got two, I, got, I got two other things. And, and again, it's just it's so hit me because it's exactly how I am. It's like I got kind of tired of the grass because you kind of predict what's going to happen. Right. Yep. And then it was like, but it was the people that made it so much fun because, you know, the, what you were saying about leadership and all, and the, the whole psychological aspect of the job in managing your people through the tough times, because it's a tough job. If you're an assistant or if you're even a technician out in the field, it's a, you're, it's a grind sometimes. Right. And, sure. it's, mm-hmm. it, and, 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 you know, I, I think that, you know, the, having that psychology, having that peace of mind and having that uh, ability to connect with people. That's where I was like, this is what this job is really about. Like the grass is the secondary piece, right? Mm. It's the, it's leading the team. It's the getting the engagement, getting them on board and, and growing the people around you and really being there for them is really where the, the fun. And I think what you were saying is like getting the most out of it. And that's, yeah. that's what the skill of empathy and all the other things really are, are good for. So, and that's, yeah. and that's. And, and to me, I, I think that that's been one of the, 
like one of the questions you guys had was like my proudest moment. And I, to tell you the truth, I read through the questions a few times and I think that one was the hardest question because I was like, I've had a lot of really great moments in this career, but Mm -hmm. I don't like to, to, to check one as the proudest moment. I'm, I'm not sure I could, but over the last number of years, we've worked really hard because we're a bedroom community here. So we have a lot of young people working here. And for a lot of them, it's their first real job. It's their first real long-term job, right? So our goal has always been, you guys aren't going to be turf managers. If you want to, that's great. But our job really as leaders and as part of the community is to set the standard and and set up the conditions so you can learn how to work and learn how to be part of a team and learn how to find your gifts and, and learn kind of how to. So when you eventually leave, we've set the foundation for your next job. And, and whether that's your career, whether whatever it is you're doing. And, and to me, we've had, we've had a number of, of kids go through here already and seeing them come back and seeing them actually be like really high functioning members of the community has been really, really rewarding. So that's so great. That's so awesome. Yeah. So you said you didn't golf. Do you golf now? I golf when I have to. But that's what I mean. You have say. to. Well, when I have to play in a tournament or I have to play with a member, or I have to do something. Um, I can play. And when I when I do it with any amount of seriousness, I'm not bad at it. I, I can hold my own. And I often say now my game is flashes of brilliance interspersed with picking the ball up and throwing it to the next tee. So so yeah, yeah, golf is golf's not the reason I do this by any stretch. It's it's interesting. Uh, it's sort of like a dichotomy. Either the the superintendents do golf, and that's like the most important thing, or they're not big on it at all, and they do it for you know function, you know, to understand the golf course and understand the play. Yeah, the experience. yeah. I, I rely um, I rely on players for that information and and our mm-hmm. pros. I, I I talk a lot to people, and because I, I I do very much care about playability and the surfaces and and it's something i'm very tuned into i putt a lot that that's yeah. kind of just what i do like I, I carry a putter a lot um but i do i do tune into the membership and tune into players and, and tune into our pros and, and we're constantly talking about playability and and how things are functioning and and whether they have advice or whether they're noticing things and that's kind of how I approach it from a golf perspective. So do you have a, any kind of a tool that you use for collecting these uh, feedbacks? You know, do you have like a feedback box or you just everyone has your cell phone number and can text you or how do you yeah. gather this kind of intel? Uh, really just by being visible. I think a lot of the time, like I'm not exactly a stereotypical general manager either um, at being in the dual roles, I generally tend to lean more towards the turf role because I've managed to build over the years an exceptional team that takes care of the like the golf operations day to day part of things because you don't want me in the pro shop standing behind the counter trying to sell you anything because I don't know anything and I don't care. Um, but I'm really glad I have people that work for me that are really good at it. And you don't mm. want me teaching you how to play. You don't want me serving you food. You don't want me doing any of that stuff. But um, I learned a long time ago as as the GM and as in the dual role, it wasn't my job to do everything. 
It was my job to ensure it got done. Mm. And then just making sure all the people who were in charge of those departments in those areas had all the tools they needed to get the job done. That That's really all it was for me. So, and I've just been blessed. The people that work with me here are just fantastic and they carry as much of the load, if not more than I do most of the time. So it, it's really a team atmosphere that way. Okay. So you play a little bit off when you need to, what else do you do? What are your, what are, what other hobbies do you have outside of the turf world? Well, obviously I meditate a lot. Um, that's the mindfulness and the meditation. I am actually a certified meditation teacher now as well, actually. So, so along with my personal meditation practice, I, I do teach um, and I've started doing some teaching virtually online and then doing some seminars and stuff locally here as well um, with businesses and different things like that and plan to kind of move more in that direction eventually. Um, Can we mine you for some uh, free teaching? You know, like what? Absolutely. How do you do your meditation? What's what's the space like, or what would you recommend someone to have a space ready to do meditation? That's a good question. Um, I think for meditation to stick, it, it's kind of like going to the gym or finding some kind of physical exercise routine that works. You have to enjoy it and you have to be comfortable. Those are the two main things. Like everyone thinks when you think about meditation, you think about sitting cross-legged and holding your hands out and humming and there's candles everywhere. Like if that's your thing, that's great. I can't cross my legs. Never been able to. And I went to a retreat two years ago and was so happy to learn that not everyone's hips work that way. And it's mm. just the way it is. And there's certain people that just cannot cross their legs. And I'm one of those people. So I sit in a chair and that's, that's perfectly acceptable. So, so really I like to try to explain meditation from the standpoint of accessibility at whatever access point you can find to be quiet and, and to find stillness within yourself. That's enough. It, it doesn't have to be anything. It can be pre-prescribed. And eventually, I think if you're intentional enough with it, you'll you'll develop your own discipline over time. And that is important because like anything we do that's worth doing, it does take discipline. So um, for me, I generally will meditate first thing in the morning before I come to work. I'm usually awake probably about 4.30 in the morning most days. And generally by five o'clock, I'll be meditating for 15 to 20 minutes before I come to work. And then there'll be lots of moments through the day that I'll just pause and take three deep breaths and just sit in my office or just sit outside and be mindful and, and just try to connect with where I am and what's happening. Because really, that's what meditation is all about. right? It's, it's the training to be present through the day with everything you're doing. And then lots of times... I'll probably come home and think about meditating at about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, but usually I'm napping and I'm really good at that too. And if the evening goes well, I can sit, I can have a sit again in the evening before I go to sleep and, and try to just use it as kind of that unwinding point for the day. Um, that's a good day. It doesn't always work that way and it doesn't always happen, but generally a day does not go by where I, where I don't sit for at least some portion of the day. I'm a big fan of like some of the, uh, like Kobe Bryant, like those kind of mm -hmm. guys, like the Michael Jordans. And I like that yep. level of excellence. And a lot of like Kobe Bryant has this thing that Phil Jackson came to LA yep. when he left the Bulls and he said like that was the first practice he put in place. 
everybody and the team did it together. And yes. like, that's yeah. very challenging, but it really built a connection between the team to get that, you know, and Kobe's like, I took it past there um, even after he left. And it was something I did first thing in the morning was just, it, it, I think the best way I heard it described was it lets you um, manage the day instead of the day manage you. Yes. Right? And I was like, wow, that's, that's so, that's so like, profound but like so clearly because i mean i find like myself i'm crazy busy i got young kids and do all that stuff but i got technology just running my life like it's mm-hmm. email text call this this and it's just how do you just stay focused on what you want to do with your day like back you know maybe 25 years ago we could go to work and you know you just kind of took care of the job and did what you needed to now your we phone got didn't coming. follow you in your pocket it, it, right right and that, i find hard. like me personally like i've struggled with the the angstness of it that there's always something to do now and the boundaries yep. are are much more skewed right and it's, it's it is and it, i you're not alone reg i mean i i don't think i don't think there's many people that don't operate like that now but it it's kind of an illusion a lot of the time. Like we we think all this stuff's important, but it really isn't. And mm. and it's really it's really just pointless busy work a lot of the time. Like uh, it's funny. Even this morning, I, I sat down and when I was emailing back and forth with you guys this morning, I had decided, okay, I haven't sat at my desk in quite a while, and I just need to carve out two hours to sit here and tick off a bunch of things on my list and contact people. And I just turned everything else off and sat there for two hours and just did what I had to do. Closed the door, just made sure no one was bothering me. And I finished and I felt like the levity I felt when I was done. I was like, oh my goodness, I got so much. Satisfying. But I really didn't. It was just a whole bunch of pointless things that I had to check off. Mm-hmm. But but I think we we fall into these grooves and, and it just become so repetitious over time and and how we measure our success is oftentimes how busy you are and and how much mm-hmm. money you're making and and what you're accumulating and all these different things and and I used to be that way. I mean, I used to measure my success by how hard I worked. And and that was it and that was something I learned a long time ago from my parents and my grandparents, God bless them all because that's what they learned. But I realized about a decade ago, I hit the wall and it it stopped hard. And I was working, I was a superintendent at both Green Gables Golf Course and Anderson's Creek Golf Course simultaneously. And we were renovating Green Gables. And so this was about a two-year descent really into burnout. And I was back and forth to neurologists because I was actually, I had been teaching at uh, Holland College here in town, and I was teaching turf, and I took a panic attack up in front of the students, and I'd never Oof. taken a panic attack in my life, and I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought all these things were happening, and and I was I was just kind of beside myself, and it took a year of unraveling to kind of get to that point, and we got to the end of the Green Gables project, and I was let go. I was, I, I, they said, you can come back if you want, but we really don't want you back. And at that point, I had pretty much decided I wasn't returning anyway, but it was one of those watershed moments where that was my goal. Like Green Gables renovating that golf course was my career goal to that point. And I had almost sacrificed everything in my life for that goal only to be let go at the end. And so that was the moment for me where I discovered mindfulness 
And it was Mm. only through the love and support of my wife, Jill, who handed me a book actually by Jack Cornfield, who became one of the teachers I took the course from two years ago. Um, And it was one of those moments again, where I was, I was reading the first couple of chapters and it was like, I, when I known it all along. And, and as soon as I started practicing it, it shifted everything for me. And, Mm. and I was able to come back into the business after that a year later and just approach it from a completely different perspective and, and really everything since then, not that it's been easy and not that it hasn't gotten crazy and hairy and foolish by times, but for the most part, success is measured in a completely different set of parameters now. And it's got nothing to do with how hard I work. Now, you, do you feel that mindfulness is more important now that we have all these technologies and all of these distractions? Absolutely. I think, I think we've been engaged in a, a massive social experiment with no double blind studies, no anything. It's just, let's give all this technology to everyone mm-hmm. with no holds barred. And we'll just see what happens. I and remember... Being 19 years old and I had a flip phone, you remember those? Mm -hmm. And I always kept it in my back pocket, right? And I went on a trip uh, with my university to go to Nicaragua. And one of the rules was we couldn't bring our cell phones. And for the first week of that trip, I was having phantom vibrations in my pocket because I thought I still had my phone. Like that is an addiction. Absolutely. And it's worse now. I mean, with smartphones, because it's not just a telephone, it's, it's an Mm -hmm. entertainment system, right? And it's, it's the connection to the world. And, and And it's that panic that when you leave the the house in the morning and you look over where your cell phone's supposed to be in your car and it's not there. Oh yeah. Fortunately, I only live like 30 seconds from the golf course, so I can just turn around and go get it. (laughs) Um, right? but yeah, it was, could you live I, without your cell phone for a day? Yeah. I could love I? it. Actually, no. I love it when I forget it. I, I oftentimes don't turn around on purpose <laughs> just so I can have a morning without it. But yeah, no, I went on a silent retreat about two years ago and that, and that was part of it. You had to kind of submit your phone at the beginning and, uh, and then not talk for seven days. So that part was even more interesting, but, uh, wow. just, uh, yeah, it was, easily one of the most fascinating experiences of my life. It was magical, really. And I do it again. I'm, I'm lucky to not talk for seven minutes. Never mind seven days. I don't know. How <laughs> yeah, no, I'm pretty good at sharing opinions as well. But um, yeah, it was just, it was so fascinating to be in a group of a hundred people for an entire week doing everything together and not speaking the whole time. And, and just, and then the last afternoon we were allowed to speak. And, and it was okay. just fascinating to actually walk around and talk to these people afterwards because you form all these stories in your head and all these little like fantasies, all these movies of all these people that are sitting in front of you. But yeah, it was it was a fascinating experience. So, yeah, I struggle with silence. I often feel the need to fill silence, you know, in a mm-hmm. dinner conversation or in a meeting, you know, I'm we're running a whole podcast. Reg and I mm. decided to do this because we like to talk. We can fill an hour of, of airtime with no problem. So I, I wonder if you could give Reg and I some tips on how to embrace silence or how to be more present in our lives. I think probably one of the most this, the simplest and most important mindful activities you can do is simply to breathe, simply to pause and breathe. Mm-hmm. Because so often through our day, we don't ever 
think about it. It happens naturally, but we don't ever pause long enough to really think about like, am I taking a full breath? Am I breathing really shallow? Am I sitting up straight? Am I all such like, and you can go through a day and how you breathe really does govern a lot of how you feel. I mean, there's all sorts of other things associated with it too, but just the intentional act of stopping and it, and it literally takes like 10 seconds to take three deep breaths, but it can interrupt. Like Reggie mentioned this busyness part, like it interrupts that cycle. And if you can do that multiple times through the day, like you don't have to sit and meditate for an hour. Like if you can find little snippets of pauses through your day, that's every bit as important. And, and really, I think when we feel hijacked by technology or hijacked by the busyness or we can doing that simple pause for one minute, two minutes, five minutes, even if it's just sitting outside, kind of feeling the breeze, whatever it is, it just interrupts that mindset and interrupts those habits that become ingrained. And then we kind of just reconnect with ourselves. And and it's that simple. Like it, it really doesn't have to be anything dramatic. And and as a superintendent and, and turf managers in general, the gift is we're outside most of the time. And yeah, like Reg earlier, you can get stuck in traffic. You can be, you can be all sorts of things in the run of a day. But most of the time, how lucky are we that my office is 170 acres and I can walk around and drive around and I can I can watch frogs. I can watch a blue heron. I can go putt. I can watch golfers play. I can feel the rain. I can feel the sun. All these things like are just right there all the time. Mm. And so, yeah, to me, I, I think keeping keeping aspirations as simple as possible. And like I said, it can be simple as carving out time for yourself through the day. And, and whether that's breathing or taking a walk or sitting quietly or even taking a nap. That's that's a very mindful moment. And, and I wholeheartedly support the art of napping anytime I get the chance. So siestas for everybody. Siestas. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, there's there's a couple there's a couple of things here that I love. And one of the things you mentioned is and I've struggled with and I'm working on personally and professionally is my reaction. Because I know I've always been of the mindset that you can control three things. You can control your action, your reaction, and your mindset, right? Those are the three things you can really control and, and focusing on those. And, and I think that that breathing piece is something I've worked on, you know, especially in a leadership role. I think, you know, now that I'm a parent, you know, my kids will come to me with bad news. And you think about the years you were a boss and someone comes to you, a pipe blew up and you're like... Like you just, you know, lose your mind, but you know, they're just telling you the information where as you've grown, I've grown in my leadership roles. It's like people are coming to me with more bigger challenges or bad, you know, worse news. And I've had to learn to be like, okay, take a breath. It's not the end of the world. Nobody got hurt, not a huge priority. And and I think that that's a good place to be mindful as, as a leader. Um, And the communication piece, I just want to circle back because I think the funny thing I find about communication, I love communication. That's why I think I talk so much. At least that's what I tell people, but is that, um, you know, the, the, all these devices, and it seems like we're making less quality communication. Does that make sense? They're very shallow. They're very quick. The, the true value of human beings in life fall. And, and it's, you know, Instagram's great and all that stuff's great, but, you know, it, it, it's taken over our lives to a point where we've become very shallow and very short. I, I follow you on Twitter and stuff. And I was like, man, this guy, like he gets it. Like he's, he's reached the point of intelligence to wisdom. There's that piece of wisdom that comes with that. Like, you know what? Like, you guys can keep being busy. I'm just going to be over here doing me and deeming mm. success in my own role on my terms, not on everybody else's. 
Right. And I yeah, think that and, that's a very intrinsic thing. And I, I appreciate that comment. Um, and again, I'll reiterate, I don't always get it right. It, I, I no. fail constantly and that's just how it is. And when animals are in cages and, and, and they're fed the same thing and they're not exposed to contact, like depression, anxiety, all these things become natural consequences. And, and, and I think as a society, we're seeing that on a grander we're, scale because we're putting ourselves in cages. Right. And I think COVID only exacerbated that on a huge like global scale. And to me, one of the most important leadership lessons I've learned through COVID was to pause long enough to ask people how they were doing and then stay long enough to listen to the answer. And that has been just so important because what we were all dealing with collectively was one thing, but everyone was dealing with it individually because they all had their own backgrounds to come at it with. And and some people, it was kind of looked like it was water off a duck's back, but for some people, it made life way, way harder because mm-hmm. they were, their baseline wasn't the same as everyone else's when it began. And so we had a lot of employees here and we had to keep going, right? We had to all keep working. I mean, we, I, I hesitate to use the word essential because I mean, I only like to think of people who work in healthcare and stuff like that as, as fitting that definition, but golf courses, we didn't really slow down. If anything, we got stupid busy mm-hmm. over the last two years. So we didn't have a choice, but to stop and, and really to be able to pause long enough and give people the space and the flexibility to answer that question and, and, and really feel safe enough to be honest and answer the question. And if it meant you needed more time off or you needed to leave early or you needed something to change, we just did it because yeah. I mean, there was, there was no rule book for how do you run a golf course during a pandemic? So it, it was really just, how do we be as compassionate and as caring as we possibly can be through all this? Yeah. And, and yeah. I know we're, we're guilty of this all the time. We start off every phone conversation like, Hey, how are you? Fine. How mm-hmm. are you? Fine. But that's not really asking. That's not really no. getting the answer. That's not no. asking the question or waiting for the answer either. So I often say to people now, I said, do you want the truth or do you want <laughs> the flippant answer that I'm fine? Yeah. <laughs> that it's up to you. So, yeah. It's interesting because I'm, I'm fairly empathic in becoming a, a leader and a boss. That's been a challenge for me because sometimes you do have to you know, manage someone a little bit more sternly and you know, you don't want to hurt someone else. But I found like... The amount of people that, you know, just were struggling through COVID, like I would walk by and, it, I, you know, I could just feel their pain, like just their oh, anxiety. Absolutely. And I think the social anxiety, I think, again, as someone who I've struggled with it myself, honestly, is like, like just anxiety and pressure and stress and, and all these other things is almost, I, I hate to blame the culture, but I feel like a lot of it is the diet that we put in our brains. And a lot of that mm-hmm. is coming from the social media world. And it's mm-hmm. diet isn't just what you put in your face and what you eat. It's also what you put in your brain. So read positive things, be around positive people. You're going to feel positively be around negative people and read negative things, you know? Um, and I think, I think the mindfulness practice allows you to block some of that out. And if you have yeah. your own clarity of, of who you yeah. are and what you're after and how you deem success, it's just so if you don't oh, look yeah. busy, you don't look stressed. It's like that badge. Right. And I think yeah. as the superintendent world that I came from, if you didn't live the golf course life, if you weren't there all the time and you didn't, you weren't succeeding, yeah. you weren't, you're good enough. Right. And we interviewed Lisha Swab and she said the same thing. She's like, I don't want to live in that world. I want to be a superintendent on my terms and I can do this and be successful. So is you got now you guys, you yourself and Chris Tritabaugh and, and Lisha, you guys all went on some kind of retreat. Yep. If I'm not mistaken, can, can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, that was back in 2018, actually. And it occurred here actually on PEI. Um, and it was sponsored by Syngenta at the time. And we brought 15 people from across North America to PEI for the first mindful superintendent retreat. And Chris and I put it on. And so we, we spent probably, I think it was four days, basically introducing everyone to the concepts of mindfulness and then talking about like heart-centered leadership, talking about all these different things that Chris really feels passionate about. And then we just had fun and, and we really just enjoyed ourselves and spent time. We ate together. We walked together. We went and played a little bit of golf and we just and really enjoyed it. And we, we had a grand time and we've been hankering and trying to figure out a way to recreate it ever since, actually. <laughs> but uh, we came close and then COVID happened and it, dis mm. it disappeared. Mm. So it will happen again. Uh, we just have to come up with a, a, a paradigm that, that fits and both fortunately and unfortunately, we figured out that bringing everyone here to PEI was a bit cumbersome and expensive. Mm. So we're we're working on a bit of a different model where probably Chris and I will go to them and then the group of people. The mindfulness will be tour. There you go. Yeah. Oh, exactly. that's good. That's good. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, we're we're really hopeful um, that we can kind of reboot that in the next year or so. That's our hope and plan. So yeah. Now you've me. been in this golf industry for. For a little while, and I think I can almost guess what your answer to this question is going to be, but I'm going to ask anyway, what is the biggest myth you'd like to debunk about golf or working in the turf industry? I thought this was the best question you guys had written down when you sent me the list of questions, because it's one I feel pretty passionate about. And the biggest myth is that turf grass is a way of life. It's not just a job, but it is just a job. Like any other thing we do in our lives, it's a job. And if you let it consume you to the point of structuring the entirety of your life around it, you will burn out. Mm. It's that simple. And I've seen it thousands of times in my compatriots and all the people I've talked to at conferences. And it is like a broken record playing over and over and over. And everybody thinks they equate the idea of being passionate about what you're doing with complete and total sacrifice of everything. And I've done that. I, I explained earlier when I burned out, that's what I thought you had to do, but it's a false flag and it's not how you do this well. And I have come across so many people over the last five or six years that are choosing to approach this differently and are incredibly successful by all measures you could come up with in this industry. And to me, watching the people wake up from this illusion has been the most fascinating part because I've done a lot of work, especially in the last two to three years, I've done a lot of work with assistant superintendents and, and at top 100 clubs in the US and, and, and sat in like at Penn State and done a lot of virtual stuff and podcasts and and they're starting to get it slowly. They're starting to see because these guys and girls, they're younger, they're from a different generation, and they're looking at the system and the paradigm we built, and they're saying, it's broken. It's not how this is supposed to, life does not work this way. I don't want to work 90 hours a week and get paid dirt and not see my family and not have a life just for a golf course. Mm -hmm. It's stupid. It, it really doesn't make any sense. And when I hear people say that turf grass is a lifestyle, that's what they're saying. It's like, I'm willing to sacrifice my the entirety of my being for a golf course I don't know. 
And, and really that's the nuts and bolts of it. And then you become so invested in the property and in your job that you forget where you begin and you end. And that's a really dangerous thing in any job you do, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or lawyer, whatever it is. But when you manage an organic entity, like a turf system that lives and breathes and grows and changes and can crap out at any time yeah, through no fault of yours, if that's all tied up in who you are, you're in trouble hmm. because it's going to fail at some point and you have no control over it failing, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's ice damage, whether it's anything at all. And if you equate that failure with an internal problem in yourself, you're in trouble. And so you, you just, it takes a lot of work, but you really just, you have to gain that perspective. And sometimes it's, it's easier for me to say now, cause I've been doing this 20 some years. I didn't think this way when I started out, I thought the exact opposite, but being 10 years or 12 years removed from that burnout now and looking at it and looking at how I operate now, it's, it's just foolhardy. It really is. And, and they're hard, they're harder and lessons. And sometimes you got to kind of go to the wall before you hit it. But if these young people can, can really see past that, that badge of honor thing, like it's just doesn't make sense because like, I don't know. I met a lot of golfers over my years and they don't care one speck how many hours we work. They don't care at all. All they care about is that there's grass under their feet and the ball rolls fairly mm -hmm. reasonably. That's all. That's it. They're just playing a so, game. It's so interesting. And Sarah, I don't know if you can equate because I don't mean to call you out, but you've never been down that road. But the struggles I've had are, are a lot of the things Paul talked about with, you know, again, my identity was tied up in my job. Mm. Right. And that's that's a really tough thing to remove. I've still struggled to find my place and feel like I fit because that's how I grew up. I mean, that's the way my father was the same way. And that's kind of where, you know, our value is as individuals. And I, I you know, our job is our identity. And, and then mm -hmm. I think the next thing you said, you know, I'm watching all the, I watched a little bit on Twitter there of these of these superintendents complaining about assistance and there's no people and there's no this. And I'm like, do not blame the millennials for this. They, they are setting boundaries that you don't like. And that's, it's a, it's a, it's a value difference. It's a, it's a difference in two people with two different values running into each other. And yeah. I've seen it my entire career. You know, they were trained by their parents who came from the, the, the great depression era, find mm -hmm. a great job, stick with it, do what your boss says. And you go to kind of my generation, we're kind of in the middle. Like we kind of have this, mm -hmm. this transitional mindset where it's like, I kind of get where the millennials are coming from, but yeah, you should work pretty hard and be dedicated. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's kind of like this balance. And then millennials are like, yeah, but you're paying me peanuts. I could start my business and make what you pay me and work half the hours. Why would I do that? I'll say that's not unique to golf either. Like, no, I don't think academic, it is. Academic, academia, you know, right, yep. literally the only thing I have is my name. Mm. You know, when I get publications out and the number of publications I get is equivalent to my success. Yep. And so everybody knows my name. <laughs> I even chose not to take my partner's name when I got married because my name is my publications and my name is my history that I am Dr. Stricker. I worked for 10 years to be that. Right. Um, and in the past, as a grad student, as I was doing my PhD, doing my master's, I equated my failures to something within myself and that led to depression. And then I, mm -hmm. I, I thankfully within the university, I was able to seek support. So I think we're, we're shifting that those values nowadays, I hope, um, yeah. to be able to ask for help when you are experiencing those 
those feelings, right? Yeah, no, I you two very valid points there, Sarah. Um, first off, superintendents are not unique in the sense that we work hard and internalize what we do. So do teachers, so do academics, so do doctors. Like mm-hmm. I often look at the, the trajectory a doctor takes to become a doctor. And it's like you run the gauntlet the whole time in the most unhealthy way possible to become the person who's in charge of telling everyone how to be healthy. Like, that's so that true. Make, oh my gosh. That that's so, that's so makes so much sense. Oh like God, how does it, it doesn't make sense at all. And, yeah. and again, do what I say, not what I do. Not what I do. Yeah. 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 And I mean, your second point, Sarah, about asking for help. And, and I think there are still a lot of barriers and roadblocks for people to step up. I think COVID changed that in a big way, even if people aren't quite willing to admit it, because I think a lot of people who never struggled in real ways before struggled during the last two years or are struggling currently because they were able to kind of hold it all together for a certain amount of time, but you can't forever. And so all of a sudden things like anxiety or panic attacks or, or feeling isolated or depression, any of those things, I think they're, I think they're affecting people that don't normally come in contact with it. And There's other people, I think, that probably have dealt with it in their own way through the years, either through addiction, either through just overwork, over all sorts of different ways that maybe just felt a bit more comfortable because everyone was struggling. And and so... When you start a movement, you never quite know where it's going to go. And and it's kind of the similar thing with the mindful superintendent. I never ever started out. I just wanted to write stuff and I just had stuff in my head that I wanted to get out. And my wife kept saying, like, you talk to me about all this stuff, write it down. And I said, well, I don't know how to write. She said, just start doing it. You'll figure it out. But yeah, it's that type of thing that over the course of 10 years, when you look back at it and you go, wow, you know what? It actually did make a difference. It's the type of thing, like, especially with like diversity and gender equality or mindfulness, any of these things, it's not the amount of people it affects. It's because when it affects one person and it changes one life, that's huge. Like yeah. it, it's no small thing when you can, somebody can open themselves to emotional intelligence or personal awareness, or it's no small thing when someone feels included all of a sudden. Yeah. There's simple things we can do too. You know, I always include my pronouns when I sign into mm. Zoom beside my name, you know, just in case yep. someone that might be in the audience feels the need to specify their pronouns to be able to be gendered. Correctly. I generally have mine. You can't see them yeah. because my wife changed her name on mine. So I usually no, put mine there. I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying that this no, is no, a, no, an funny. example of something we can do. That's pretty, pretty easy. And I explained it to someone else, you know, because they, their response was like, I'm clearly a man. Like, why would I need to put my pronouns? Everyone knows that I'm a man. I'm like, it's not for you. No, it's for the one other person that might want to feel included that someone else is doing the same thing that they're doing. Right? Yes. I'm, so. I'm blessed with a very aware 17 year old daughter who explains all this to me constantly. And it's beautiful and wonderful because she's opened me to, to a whole breadth of inclusion and realization and awareness with people that I just didn't grow up with. And it's didn't, it's not that I didn't agree with it. I just didn't know as much as I should have. Right. And it's a different time now. And I think it's that, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, right. And the whole Mm -hmm. idea of vulnerability, like the strength in vulnerability, right. Because vulnerability is where a lot, where you allow connection and Mm -hmm. that allows people to, to understand that they're not alone. Like, you know, I think like anxiety is one 
and I, I, my only definition I've ever figured out for anxiety is you trying to worry about something that's never happened. And it's like, you're constantly thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, is you can't even control like 10% of what that's going to be. Right. So it's overthinking and thinking too much about the future that cause mm-hmm. a lot of these problems. Right. Or, and I think FOMO is a big one now with social, right. I see someone at, in, in Bermuda. It's like, why am I not in Bermuda? I work hard. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, and, and I feel like I wouldn't be in Bermuda. Like, and it just, it, there's no way to, to see that every day and not to start to feel like, you know, maybe you're not up to that level, or maybe you're not getting the same things out of life other people. And I think that's where a lot of people are struggling with that, myself included. Like I kind of, I used to be a big Twitter person. I kind of backed up a bit. Mm-hmm. I just found it became, you know, there, it's just, it's just got so much, right. And and it can be overwhelming when you see like people having fun, people doing this and you're like, I'm at work. It's like, mm-hmm. what am I doing? So it creates isolation in its own way. It creates social anxiety because you don't feel like yeah. you measure up to someone else's Instagram life. And, that's- and it, 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 it can be hard as superintendents too, because you're watching other superintendents do things you can't afford to do. Mm-hmm. Right. You're watching sure. renovation jobs or you're seeing improvements or you're seeing things or you're seeing courses do things that you wish you could do. Or you're like, why am I not doing that? But it's not your it's apple. Should, should, should I be doing that? Am I right. missing something? Right. Like, exactly. Ah, ah. But like, you just the sky's have falling. To, you have to be able to get to that point in yourself where you can it's like anything on social media. Like they're they're effective tools and they're wonderful tools if like any tool, if you use it the right way. Well, if you sit with a hammer and hit yourself in the head, it's not using the hammer the right way. <laughs> if you hit a nail, that's how it's supposed to work. But with social media, if you're just going to use it to compare yourself to everyone else, well, you're never going to add up. It's never going to work. But if you can use it to learn, if you can use it to gain, or you just use it for appropriate entertainment. I play music. I play guitar. I love watching on Instagram how people build guitars. So watching the guys at Fender build electric guitars is cool. I never would have imagined I could have done that. So really, I think being able to use it the right way and then just set it aside. And sometimes I fall into the same patterns where I'm far too invested in it myself. And and But really... I think, again, coming back to mindfulness and coming back to the gifts that it offers, when you become aware of how you think and how you feel and how you feel in your body, when you start piecing all that stuff together and you realize that every thought in your head isn't true and you don't have to pay attention to all the thoughts in your head because it's this constant waterfall of thoughts all day long. There's no possible way you can pay attention to all of them. And you just start letting them come and go. And that's the practice of meditation. You just start letting them. It's like waves on a beach or clouds in the sky. You just, you just start practicing, watching it come and go. And then, then you kind of laugh at it after a while and and, and you kind of, you kind of look at it and you're like, oh, there's this little monkey in there that I can never catch. And he, he, sometimes he sleeps, but most of the time he just bops around in there and makes everything seem chaotic, but it's really just thinking and everyone does it. And everyone thinks they overthink and everyone thinks they think way more than the next, but we all do it. And unfortunately the fuel of social media does not generally help thinking and overthinking and ruminating and such. So. How important do you feel gratitude is when you talk about mindfulness? Gratitude is is a key pillar of living a mindful life because if you can't pause long enough to appreciate the gifts you do have, even if it's simply the fact that you can pause and breathe, 
because I mean, how many times over the last two years have people struggled with breathing or that you have your health or that you have a roof over your head. So all of these things, when we live in a culture like we do, it's all based on consumption. It's, it's hard to be grateful because we're conditioned to just want more. So it's hard to pause long enough to really see the gifts. But I think, again, coming back to speaking to the, the great collective pause of COVID, I mean, I, I think... I think gratitude was a big part of it for a lot of people. It was difficult for a lot of people, and I don't want to minimize it in any way. But I think people were offered the chance to pause and slow down and stop because they had no choice. But then when you do those things, you get to tune back into yourself and you get to know yourself better and, and you get to relax and rest and, and do all the things that we don't normally do in the run of a day, in the run of a season and all these things. And so being able to pause long enough just to be grateful for simple things, like I mentioned earlier, the gift of working outside all day. I mean, yeah, I got to put sunscreen on and wear a big hat, but that's fine. Um, and occasionally you get stuck in the rain and you get wet when you're upside down in an irrigation hole, but that's okay too. Um, yeah. That happens. But I mean, really being grateful that I have the chance to go to work and watch the sunrise and, and work with wonderful people and, and make people happy. Cause really at the end of the day, the golf course, that's our mantra here. It's just, we just want to make sure people have fun. That's it. It's a game. It's, it's a game. And, and when we get all stressed out about diseases or whether something isn't working or this, that or the other thing, all we do is prepare a surface for people to play a game on. That's all. That's, that's such a great perspective. So so, you know, that all said, you, you know, we did, we did talk a bit about some new entrants into the turf industry. So what kind of advice do you think you'd give coming out of the gate? I think first and foremost is know thyself. Learn about what makes you tick. And like the personal awareness thing is huge. It really is. And then probably be flexible and be open to all sorts of different things, like whether you're going to work on a golf course or whether you're working with Sarah doing research or whether you're working for property management, like there's all sorts of things you can do. And, and if you're open to new experiences, I think the world is your oyster really. Um, Cause this gig now you can work anywhere you want. And then I think maybe the next main thing that really coincides with the first thing is, is just invest in yourself Invest in, in self-care, invest in the things that make you happy and, and then invest in the things that kind of propel you forward too. And sometimes it has to do with turf and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes well, I don't know about you, Rich, but I'm feeling more centered and calm and prepared for tomorrow. You know, this has been a really great conversation. And, and Paul, I really appreciate uh, your time and, and talking to us about this. I think this is a lot of valuable information that you know, even if people are in the sod or lawn care or golf or sports field or outside of the turf industry, you could really learn a lot from from you and your mindfulness practices. Absolutely. Thank you so very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Paul, I, I, it's been a joy. Uh, I'm so happy you came and, and taught us a little bit. I, I, I've always, like I said, I've always followed you on social and I find that whole, I'd, I'd like to be more mindful in my own life and more present in my own life, especially with family and things like that. So 
you know, I, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll reach out to you after this and chat with you a bit more. Cause I'd like to learn a little bit more about how I could calm my own brain down and keep my, keep myself more centered. But so thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, everyone can find you on Twitter. The handle is, uh, at mindful super and, um, we'll stay tuned for your next, uh, retreat. I, I'd love to attend if I could or have you here. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode. And I hope that everyone listening can take three deep breaths and think about what you're grateful for. Thanks for listening and tune in next time to Canadian Turf Talks. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Guelph and the Guelph Turf Grass Institute.